That's what we'll be talking about today in Acts chapter 26, if you want to turn there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you do supply our needs, that you have given us more than finances. You've given us life. You've given us purpose. You've given us guidance and wisdom. And most of all, you've given us your spirit, your presence, that we can seek you and find you when we seek you with our whole heart. And I pray, Lord, you would pour out your spirit upon us today as we read your word, that it would impact us, that there would be practical application for each one of us, and we would be strengthened and encouraged and challenged by you to do the things you've said and to praise you, Lord, to seek you and to just lift our hands in reverence and in offering ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've had a bit of a hiatus, but we're back. We're back in Acts. And to set the stage, Paul has been a prisoner in Caesarea, and Festus became the governor. He was, Felix had just said, you know, I'm going to do the Jews a favor and left Saul or Paul bound. And then Festus, also wanting to do the Jews a favor, says, hey, are you willing to go to Jerusalem to be tried? But the Jews had made it very clear they wanted to see Paul executed. So there was going to be no justice there. And it was the opposite direction of where Paul believed God was leading him, which was to Rome. So he appealed to Caesar. And Festus says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And shortly after Festus became governor, uh, King Agrippa, who is king in Jerusalem, and his wife Bernice, uh, so king of Judea, and his wife Bernice, who was Jewish, they visited, and as they're talking with Festus, Festus brings up Paul, this notable prisoner. And they said, oh, this is intriguing. We'd love to hear him. And he's like, tomorrow you will. So there's this big parade, uh, this this great gathering. There's dignitaries and nobles and and then Paul is brought out to speak. And it's not a trial where he could defend himself. There was no hope of him receiving a pardon or uh, it was just the curiosity of the king. He wanted to hear Paul speak. And Paul, instead of just defending himself or attacking his accusers, he used it as an opportunity to share the gospel and to proclaim Jesus Christ. And it's such a good example, right? It didn't matter if it was an unruly mob, if it was the Sanhedrin, if Paul was speaking to a governor, a a guard, or even the king. He kept at the same message, sharing the truth of God and his word. And his story was a bridge to lead others to Jesus. And it's such a, a challenge that the prior negative responses didn't put him off from sharing the same thing again. Now, have you ever been put off because you shared the truth and people didn't respond to the truth? They were not positive. And so you're like, okay. And you decided in the future that you weren't going to open your mouth. But see, Paul didn't almost share the gospel because if you almost share the gospel, you don't share the gospel. It's like almost winning. It means you didn't win. So almost is like falling short of an important thing. And he shared the gospel. And and I love that It's not like we almost can get there on our own and God supplies that little extra to push us across the line. He actually helps us start to finish to do everything he's commanded us when we rely upon him. So praise the Lord for that. So now Paul is beginning his discourse in Acts 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, 
I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. King Agrippa acknowledges Paul, and he responds by reaching out his chained hand. He was in chains at this time. And he'd been two years in Caesarea, though innocent. And I love that he's cheerful. He's like, I am happy. I'm so blessed to get to speak to you today, King Agrippa. It wasn't just positive thinking. It wasn't because he hoped to make a good impression because it would do well for him. I mean, he had appealed to Caesar. It was Caesar who would judge him. But he was cheerful, even in chains, because of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God upon him. And there was a bit of history between King Agrippa as well with Christians because his great-grandfather had tried to kill Jesus. He had actually killed those little boys, two and younger, that were in Bethlehem. His grandfather had beheaded John the Baptist, and his father had executed James the Apostle. So there was a lot of tough stuff that had happened by the Herod family towards Christians and towards Christ, but Paul was still cheerful to proclaim the good news to him. There's no hostility. There's no anger. He's like, I'm blessed to speak to you. And that's a big challenge to me because we've, I have dealt with things that are, they don't even compare with what Paul and the believers had to deal with. And yet Paul, here he is radiant with the presence of the Lord and joyful to answer. It was no chore for him to be God's faithful witness of all he had seen and heard because God is faithful. Verse 3, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? He begins from his childhood saying, I was raised in Jerusalem. The Jews who accused me, they know all these things. They've known me since I was a child. Uh, I was raised in Jerusalem according to the law uh, with the strictest sect because there's a, a lot of different degrees of orthodoxy in Judaism. And he said, mine was the strictest. There was no one who could say that they were more strict in following the law. And he basically had a PhD in uh, Jewish law. He was a Pharisee. So he had attained a high level. There was no denying his credentials. He said, I, loved, I lived among them. And if they would testify, they would agree. Yes, it's true. We can't deny his qualifications according to the law. And he said, he repeated something that he said before, that he's being judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And he speaks of that promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that preceded law. The law didn't come until after the children of Israel left. Egypt. So he refers back to that original promise and said that from the beginning we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if you look at the way that the Bible even says where they were buried, it says they were, when, when people died, that they were gathered to their fathers. So they were alive. Their soul had remained. 
Jesus said in Matthew 22, 31, when he was talking to Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection or the spirit world, he said, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus acknowledges that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're alive to this day, and God is the God of the living. And the Jews hoped for a better resurrection. The Pharisees believed that in reading and searching the scriptures, they could find life. Jesus said, you're looking through the scriptures to find life, but that life is found in me through faith in me. And that's what the Jews didn't realize. But God had revealed to Paul and many others was that his promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ being the promised Messiah, that through him they would have life. They could have um, eternal life through Christ. So the logical implications of of the promise made to Abraham and the law was following Jesus and trusting in him. And then he asked, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Incredible will use to say something amazing, but the, the definition of the word means unbelievable. So if you saw something, you go, that is incredible. It's not just amazing, but unbelievable. It's, it beggars belief. The resurrection of the dead is a stumbling block for a lot of people. Yet even in nature, we see things have a resurrection of sorts during springtime. We've seen that lately with the rain, all the paddocks that I would drive by that were just brown and dead. They're bright and vibrant now. There's been, of sorts, a resurrection. And if God created all things from nothing, is it hard for him to bring life to something that was once alive? No, because he made things alive from nothing, which... They're both miraculous and amazing and uh, incredible in a sense. But God is so far above us. His ways are so beyond our ability to comprehend. There's, there's things that people know in this room that tower above me. Like, I don't understand them. I can't follow them. Uh, like higher level maths. At a point, I think it was at imaginary numbers when I just kind of lost all real understanding of maths and why does it exist? Why do I exist? Make this class end. Um, so there's things in this world that, that are way above our ability to understand. And how much greater is God than us? You can compile all the knowledge of all people and all the imaginations of all the people, and it cannot even begin to approach the level of God. So he says, if, if there's a God, why is it incredible that he should raise the dead? Because he's God. And he's so great and mighty. The resurrection, we don't have to imagine that there was a resurrection. It is believable. It's credible. It's proven through Jesus rising from the dead. Faith believes that God is. And because God is God, nothing is impossible or even difficult for him. Verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul continues his testimony 
He freely confessed how he was not initially receptive to the gospel. In fact, he opposed it vehemently. Uh, He was fiercely opposed to the idea that Jesus would be the Christ or the promised Messiah. He said, I aggressively persecuted Christians in every synagogue. I went looking for them, even to, to distant cities. I imprisoned them, and when they were executed, I said, they don't deserve to live. I agreed with their deaths. He says, I punished them. I was enraged against them. He, he uses a lot of strong language here to say, I hunted them down, and I wanted them dead. I wanted nothing to do with them. This shows that all of our testimonies uh, will include a time when we did not know Jesus. There's no one who is born a Christian. You are born again by a choice that you make to believe and to follow Jesus Christ. And there's times we can say that even since professing faith in Christ, we have not been walking with Jesus, right? We've walked contrary to him. We have gone far from the right way. There's nothing wrong with an honest portrayal of what your life was without Jesus or how life has been when you walked away from Jesus or you fled from Jesus when he called out to you and he said, I want nothing to do with you. In all of us, we've had seasons like that. So we should be honest about uh, in speaking of our testimony and in testifying of what God has done in our lives. There's nothing wrong with an honest portrayal. But at the same time, it's nothing to brag about. It's nothing to boast over. Uh, There's no room for pride in how bad we used to be or self-righteous smugness in how great we are now or how much better life is now. Having been made new creations by the grace of God, we're to honor him in saying, you know, I was once blind, but now I see. Our stories, our pasts are all different but our aim in sharing them ought to be the same. To point to Jesus Christ as our Savior, to say he's the one who's changed me. He's the one who has saved me. He has redeemed me. We're to draw attention to the greatness of our Lord, not how wicked we once were. My dad used to have a jacket that was hanging in his closet, and uh, we'd never seen him wear it. It had some embroidery on the back. And we said, what's the story with the jacket? And he's like, you know, the man who used to wear that jacket is dead. (laughs) And we were like, oh, okay. That was a bit interesting to think about. But that was the jacket he would wear when he was a hoodlum and running around causing trouble, looking for fights. And he says, I've got the jacket, but that man doesn't exist anymore. He never went into great detail about what he used to do. He didn't ever really speak about that but we could say that he was a different man and it was because of Jesus. It wasn't because he saw the light. It's because Jesus changed him. And may our lives too be a testimony that we say, you know, that that's the old man. That's the old life. And I don't have that life anymore. Acts 26, verse 12, While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the third time in the book of Acts where Paul details his uh, conversion experience. And Luke chose to, to give great place to this story again and again and again. And they're all slightly different or focused on different things based upon the audience. But he says, the risen Jesus Christ appeared to me on the road. He knocked, you know, we all fell to the ground. I heard him speaking to me in Hebrew, calling me by name. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. It's like God was, the, the goad was something that they would use to prod an ox or to correct it, to, to guide it. And he says, it's hard to kick against the goads. So it's this sharp thing. And he's like, hey, Paul, hey, look. And he's like, you know, ugh. Just kicking against it. And when you kick against the goad, it hurts. And he just kept, he was hurting only himself in choosing to kick against God's guidance and God trying to get his attention and show, and he knew it. And, and it was born through this rage against the church and rage against Jesus. That was the way he was kicking back against God. And in kicking back against the church, he was persecuting Jesus. And Jesus take, he takes that personally. He says, you're persecuting me. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my redeemed or my church or my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And that's the same Jesus that has our backs. He's the same one who will protect us. And who knows that if someone's been a bit anti towards you when you've shared the gospel, if they're not kicking back against not you, but the Lord, and he will deal with them in his time and in his gentle way. So Jesus reveals himself with that blinding light, brighter than the sun, for a purpose. And he states what it is, to be a minister and a witness of what he saw and what God would yet reveal. So there are things that, that Paul would be revealed in the future that he didn't even know then. And that he would be sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, to turn them from Satan's power to God, so that could, they could be forgiven. And it says there, Make him a minister and a witness. Minister, that's a title of distinction for us. When I had a permanent resident visa, it was minister of religion, 186. Uh, and it's, a, it's kind of a title to say occupation, minister. But the meaning of the word is very interesting because it means subordinate. So it's not like boss. It's servant, subordinate, or under rower, or under oarsman. The Greek and the Roman ships, they would have one up to three levels of oarsmen, 170 plus people under decks, so in the galley, and they would be rowing. And when they weren't using, they would use that in combat to evade other ships because the ships were made to ram other ships to sink them. So there's all these guys not bathing frequently, working really hard on those oars, you know, to... Listen to the master's orders because they can't see. It's not like they can see out. They're just hearing a sound like stop forward, you know, one side go to turn around and then 
So, and their lives depend upon it. And it was said that the galley, uh, where the people were rowing, was so foul that a mile away you could smell it if the wind was blowing the right way. Ooh. So that is a minister, someone who is toiling, someone who is a subordinate, somebody who is listening to the captain and pulling at that oar. And guys would do this for decades. This was their job. Mostly free men who would be in that role. Part of a team. The word witness is really strong. We think of a witness as somebody who gives testimony in a court, right? It's kind of a sanitary, clean environment. Well, the word, the root word in Greek, is the one from which we get martyr. Someone who dies for a cause. It's very strong imagery. Your minister is that underroar, someone who is subordinate and working hard for their captain with others, and that faithful witness is someone who speaks the truth even if it costs them their lives. They are going to bear testimony, a living martyr for the Lord. Paul's approach in speaking of his life, it's really masterful because the message of the gospel is woven throughout. When we read this this whole discourse, we see that without him like quoting scripture, He's actually told people how they can be saved in just listening to his story. And this is, this is something we can do when we tell a story. That it's not just about the story, but in that story, it's used as a means to draw people to Jesus, to illuminate his glory and his goodness. And I believe that as God has called Paul to a purpose that was much greater than himself, being to God's service, God has a purpose in calling you and in you receiving his spirit. You might not have seen a light brighter than the sun or fallen down with your conversion experience. Maybe you did. Maybe you haven't heard Jesus speak to you in Hebrew, and if he did, I don't know that you'd understand what he was saying. Paul understood. But God has spoken to you if you've come to him. And he's spoken to you for a purpose and a reason. And I think that these are reasons so that the light of the gospel can be brought to people in darkness. That we would be the ones who are walking worthy of repentance. That God hasn't just saved us from hell. That was kind of my thinking as a child when I chose to follow Jesus. It was like, God saved me from hell. Whew, that's good. I'm glad to not be going to hell. And then I started learning what heaven was like. And the Bible doesn't really say that much about heaven. But there are things that where it says, you know, every tear is going to be wiped away. All that sorrow and the pain and the sickness, it's going to be gone. And you won't even remember it. It's, you know, rejoice in what I'm going to make. A joyful place where only righteousness dwells. Where there, it's light because it's the light of God that illuminates it. And you're like, that is awesome. But God hasn't only saved you from hell or for heaven, but he saved you to do good works for him now, as Paul is doing to in telling his story to lead people to Christ. God has saved us so we can know him, so we can seek him, so we can enter into those good works. And why don't we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's very practical. 
We might have an idea of what a good work is. The Jews did. They said, Jesus, how can we do the works of God? And he didn't say keep the law. He said, believe on him whom he has sent. Believe on me. That's a great work. It may not seem a great work to you. Maybe to us a great work is like writing that book that makes a difference in thousands of people's lives or having a having notoriety or doing starting some ministry or even saving a soul. We're like that's the pinnacle. Well, those those are all awesome things and I pray that through us many souls would be saved. But God knows what these good works are for you to enter into. And when we're seeking him, we can. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus said there is no one good but God, and when we read good works, those are godly things. Those are works that resemble those of our Savior. When he washed the disciples' feet, he says, as I have done, so you will do. And in another place, that no servant is above his master. So we are to emulate him, not just to copy him like you put on a disguise to try to be someone else, but when we're born again, the Holy Spirit lives within us, and we are equipped and enabled to begin to think and to speak and to do as Jesus does, these good works that please him. Responding in obedience to the commandment of God, is that automatic? No. No, it's not automatic. It'd be so nice if it was, in one sense, because we wouldn't like that. That's the other side of it. It might be easy if it was automatic, but your child's obedience to a parent That's not automatic. It takes uh, the will of the child choosing to be subordinate to the parent. And in the same way, we need to make a conscious decision to be obedient to what God has said. Following Christ's commands was not automatic for Paul. It wasn't achieved through the efforts of his flesh. He was born again by faith in Jesus, and God empowered him to obey. God set Paul apart and ordained him to do a work, but Paul also set himself apart to accomplish that same thing. And that's the choice that we need to make. Because once you've sought the Lord and you've heard from the Lord, we are to recognize God's made a call upon believers that we are, okay, love one another as he loves us. So then we can, knowing that's God's call upon my life, How can I practically sanctify myself to do that thing? And we seek to do that whenever possible. That's a way that we can enter into these good works. I imagine that being an under oarsman or a martyr was not the idea of an abundant life that Paul thought for himself. Right? Under the deck. Not visible. Um, But see, he... He made himself as a martyr. He proclaimed himself, he proclaimed Christ even before the executioner's sword found its mark. And that's that's the rub for us. I used to almost fantasize, like, what would I do if someone came into my school and said, you know, 
held a gun to your head and just said, you know, deny Jesus or you die. And I always thought, you know, in that moment I would. But man, it was really hard to stand up for Jesus just around friends who didn't have guns. It seemed to me in my folly that I would be more apt to stand up for God if my life was on the line than if it didn't. And that's a lie. Now, God can, of course, give you that faith in that moment when your life is on the line and give you faith to be bold for him in a way that you're not naturally bold. And praise the Lord for that. But let's not think Paul had it easier than us. Or let's not think that, oh, every generation has had it easier than we have to proclaim Christ. No, people are the same. And we can be deluded. We can be deceived to think that we're bold when, or excuse our own uh, unbelief. In light of Christ's glory, Paul delighted to be subordinate to Christ, to do all he was commanded, even in chains. Because it was obeying Jesus that led to chains, but he kept obeying Jesus. He didn't stop because life got hard, or things were difficult, or his freedom was cut off. He kept following, and may that be an encouragement to us to keep on going. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come that the Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul had traveled to Damascus with the authority of the high priest to arrest all followers of Jesus, extradite them to Jerusalem to face court. Yet, when he was born again, it said he stayed in Damascus with believers. So they, I'm thinking, man, he like had his hotels already booked. I'm just thinking in modern terminology. He had a place where he was planning on staying, but instead he stayed with Christians, with them. And he went to the synagogue and immediately proclaimed Christ. When the people that had come with him, they saw him breathing out threats. He was talking a big game on the way to Damascus. He's like, oh, they're going down. We're going to find every one of them. We're going to hunt them down like dogs. We're going to bring them back to Jerusalem. And he's blinded. By Christ, he's totally changed. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there's this complete reversal where he's now proclaiming, you know, the Bible says that Jesus is the Messiah and this is how it lines up. And he was bold about it. And what was the message? Well, the same gospel message that was preached by John the Baptist, the same message preached by Jesus, one that emphasized repentance. As I was preparing talks for Kedron, uh, leading up to camp a couple weeks ago, I was reminded of things, good biblical things, that we can emphasize in sharing Christ with others, like the blessings or the forgiveness or the peace or grace that we receive from God's love. But those are not things, interestingly, you can do your own research, but they're not things heavily emphasized by Jesus or John the Baptist or Paul. Those are all true, those are all good, um, but if you need to preach repentance, there's a few things that must be established, that there is a God and that we are sinners who have rebelled against God 
and therefore we must repent and be born again through faith in Jesus. Matthew 3, 1 through 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so John. And it's like, after John was imprisoned, Jesus didn't shift the message. It says in Matthew 4, 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting. And then after his resurrection, in Luke, Chapter 24, 45 through 47. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, Thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So it's this key theme throughout everything. All this gospel preaching, and we see it with, with Paul as well. Repentance. Really important. It's, it's the gospel in a nutshell. We have to repent before we can be converted. And if we merely turn from one sin, we will just rush to another. That's why it's important that we turn to God. You see where he says that? I declared they should repent, turn to God, and do works benefiting repentance. It's so awesome that when we're born again, our lives begin to reflect that of our Lord Jesus. Now, the boys and I, in our household, we enjoy our NRL. Laura, not so much. But we do like our NRL. And it's funny because there's a lot of siblings in the league. And when Corbin Sims from the Broncos shaved, they were playing against the Dragons. And I'm like, there, that guy, Tariq, he looks really similar to Corbin. And it's like, oh yeah, their, their last names are both Sims. And then they started talking about how they were brothers. But it wasn't the name that actually clued me in to know that they were related. It was how they looked. And then I was really tripping because as Tariq is walking off the pitch, he's being interviewed by his sister, Rua who's a Channel 9 commentator. So I was like, whoa, how many of them are there? It turns out there's five of them, and they all play. Uh, but the family resemblance between brother and sister and brother and brother, it was really strong in how they were built and that they were, you know, it looks like they are playing the right sport for them. Um, and how awesome it is when we're outed as a Christian because of our conduct that's righteous. Because we're beginning to speak like Jesus, not like the people around us. We're beginning to uh, react to negative situations, being cheerful, when before we would have been depressed and angry about it. And the, it's the Lord that does that in us. And we don't need to try to put on an act to act like a Christian. It's the work of God in our hearts. But that's something we should embrace and say, I, I want to live a life that's pleasing to God, that aligns with what Jesus does and how he wants me to live. Paul proclaimed that he had help from God to stand, that according to Scripture, the Messiah would suffer, he would rise from the dead and proclaim light to all dwelt in darkness. 
One thing I appreciate about Paul is he doesn't hold back. It doesn't matter if he's talking to a king or anyone, he holds forth the truth. Even before he had chains, he wasn't like, you know, if I tell them the truth, I might be arrested. That didn't stop him from saying the truth. And when he has chains on his hands, he wasn't like, look what got me here. <laughs> he's still proclaiming the truth. He doesn't care if his life is over because he no longer counted his life as dear to himself. He says, I stand here because of God. And it was God who gave him that opportunity. And it's God who would give him the opportunity to sail, to be shipwrecked, to survive, and then to go on to Rome all the way making disciples, all the way making a difference through Jesus Christ. I'm also impressed that Paul never veers from his primary focus of proclaiming Christ. He didn't become confused or disillusioned by theological grapplings. And it's not to say he wasn't well-learned, right? A lot of his doctrine shared through those epistles, many intellectuals have run aground on and, and been really stumped by. Like, how is this possible? So he was a heady, intelligent, schooled man. But he never moved from that main point. Messiah coming to the earth, that he would suffer according to the scriptures, that he would die and be raised from the dead. And he, he kept the course, and may we all do the same. All of us have opportunities to proclaim the gospel by our words and how we live. And so the question then is, have I repented of my sin? Am I? It's one thing to talk about, you all need to repent. <laughs> but have I repented, and am I repenting? And having repented, am I turning towards God? And am I trusting him more and seeking him? Let's not hold back, even if we think people might refuse that message with the R word, repent. Like, oh, people don't want to hear that. Really? Of course they don't. We don't like talking about repentance. We don't like repenting. Who does? But by God's grace, we can rejoice even in chains. I mean, Paul's in chains and he's rejoicing. He's glad because he is the Lord's witness. Verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. The governor Festus breaks in on Paul's discourse, and he says, You're beside yourself. You're insane. You've been studying too much. Too many books for you, Paul. Lay off the theology. But Paul says, I'm not mad. I'm not insane, because I'm speaking words of truth and reason. The things I'm saying, they're verifiable. They're in the scriptures. This is the word of God. A madman speaks nonsense. He speaks illogically. It's detached from reality. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ was verifiable. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. There was an empty tomb to contend with. He's saying, I'm speaking the truth. And I'm only speaking what's confirmed by the law and the prophets concerning Christ. And they weren't done in a corner. Kings were very much, as rulers are today, very much into intel. They want intelligence. 
and a king especially, because their throne was under attack. It could be subversive attack from within, and people were not afraid for a military takeover so that they could be king. And so they had their spies, they had their informants and their counselors, and he know, he says, hey, and so he turns his address right to Agrippa and says, Agrippa, I know you know what I'm talking about. Now, Festus, he may have been, you know, somewhere else, but you know, you know about Jesus, and you know about the law and the prophets too, and I know you believe them. So he just singles out the king. He's in chains, but he's free to speak the truth. And that's true for us too. Let's not be chained by the expectations of others or wanting to be liked that we hold back from key points and saying pointed things as the Lord leads. We can think they need to hear this, but that could just be me thinking that. The Lord knows what they need to hear, and he's able to communicate that to him, to them. But we ought to be obedient to what the Lord has said. The freedom given through Jesus is not to do whatever we want or feel like doing, but to draw near to God and to see him in glory. We read in family devotions this week about how Moses met with the Lord. And when he came back from speaking with the Lord, his face was radiant and, and shining from the presence of the Lord. And the people were kind of like, whoa, intimidated to be around him. And so when he addressed them, he put a veil over his face. And when he went into the presence of the Lord, though, he removed the veil. It's kind of like if I'm praying, I take my glasses off because I'm like, I don't need these. I'm, I don't need to be reading right now. Uh, so he would remove the veil when he went before the Lord. And Paul uses this as analogy in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says that veil is like unbelief in the hearts of the Jews. And when you believe in Jesus, it's like that veil is taken away and you're able to behold the glory of God through Jesus. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul had spent time with Jesus, and under, under 600 words, he was able to make a profound and eternal impact upon his hearers. I mean, that's like two pages. Two pages of, two or three pages of text. And if you had to speak before the king, how, how many pages, you know, to convey the truth? How many words might you use? I was thinking, man, I'd be like writing a dissertation for this and that and you know, all these points, and but it's very simple, but it's spirit-led. The family of Jesus had said, he's beside himself. Now Festus is saying to Paul, he's beside himself, right? It looked crazy to them, but both spoke the words of truth and reason. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free 
if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul puts King Agrippa on the spot. Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. But Agrippa will not acknowledge belief in either. He says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, was this almost because of some fault in Paul's address? Maybe he didn't get enough theology, didn't say the right verse. His words were just a little mixed up. No, it had nothing to do with that at all. It had to do with unbelief in Agrippa's heart. He still had that veil over his heart because he refused to believe on Jesus as being the Son of God. And I don't know if if Paul was like, I can be, but I can hyperanalyze everything I've said if, if someone doesn't respond in the way that I wish they would. Agrippa does not come to Christ immediately. Bernice and Festus do not go, well, Paul, you're making a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I want. how can I be saved? We don't need to second-guess ourselves when we speak words of truth and reason from a heart that is loving, desiring that Jesus be honored. It had to do with Agrippa and God. Paul gave him the truth, and it was up to Agrippa if he would believe or not. It really, in the end, had very little to do with Paul, he was that righteous instrument used by the Lord to speak forth the truth, but it was between God and Agrippa. We can put ourselves under such pressure that we have to seal the deal. We have to get some sort of arbitrary response so that we've done a good job. And I'm just speaking for myself. Sometimes that's how I feel. But we don't need to be that way. We can be cheerful and rejoice to, to speak the truth and words of reason. It was Agrippa who chose to remain in darkness. The idea that Paul might have been set free is similar to Agrippa's almost becoming a Christian. Even if he had not appealed to Caesar, he might not have been set free. So we don't need to question Paul's desire to uh, to follow the leading of the Lord. So just to bring it home, let's, let's not imagine it For a second, it was easier for Paul to make a stand for Jesus than it is for us because we have the same Holy Spirit living within us. If it was easier for Paul than us, it's because he stopped counting his life as dear unto himself. Instead, he was using his life to serve the Lord. Could you turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Hopefully, this is a word of encouragement and exhortation to you. When Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and he's revealed himself to us through his word, Paul set about seeking and obeying God to be whom God ordained him to be. And we can do the same. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, and the context is speaking of this ministry of reconciliation God has given each one of us that people would be reconciled with God. First, that we would be reconciled with God. We'd be in a good, close relationship with the Lord. But then, through our lives, other people would become uh, reconciled to the Lord. And as his ministers, right, we're those under-rowers. We're those under-oarsmen who are laboring toward that end, keeping in, in step with our Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have... This ministry, my pages are stuck together. We have received mercy. 
do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We live in a world darkened with sin, with people who have sin-darkened consciences, and how great the need is for the light of the gospel to shine through us. And God has given us that opportunity. And let's not be guilty of being the ones who veil the gospel from someone else because we, we avoid topics like repentance or sin in our own life and also in our proclamation. The children of Israel, they ascribed glory to Moses as a prophet. It may be possible that we would ascribe glory to Paul as an apostle, but any glory they possessed, it's because of the God who lived within them, the Holy Spirit who was upon them, in whose presence they delighted to abide. These were guys who spent time with God. And as we spend time with God, we too can shine for his glory. So let's be those who seek the Lord. And we don't have to be in a prison. Maybe, maybe it will take prison. <laughs> I, hopefully not. But uh, that we would be in a place where we seek the Lord and we abide in his presence and then we boldly proclaim his truth. Words of truth and reason. And what a treasure we have in him. We're just these earthen vessels. Uh, some of the ancients said uh, dust moistened, moistened with blood. That's we from dust we are into dust we will return, but through us can shine the the brightness of the glory of God by His grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great God. You are you are brighter than the sun, glorious in all your ways. And and forgive me, Lord, when I have when your glory has been veiled in my life because of unbelief, because I was afraid of what people thought. Uh, or I was lazy, or I was forgetful. Lord, help me to be one who draws near to you, in whom the presence of God overflows, through whom living water would flow to many others that they would be saved. Lord, for all of us, we ask that we would be bold and cheerful in our boldness, even as Paul was, that he didn't think himself some mighty man, but he was an under rower. He was a witness, a martyr of your glory and goodness. Lord, may our lives be invested for your praise. May our, our eyes be fixed upon you for salvation and for help in a hopeless world. And may we be those, Lord, through whom you proclaim your good news of salvation. And by uh, you working through us, many would be redeemed and reconciled. We praise you, Lord, because you're awesome and your ways are perfect. You do speak words of reason and truth. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.